Welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. This podcast explores what it means to make life less difficult for each other and for ourselves. We share stories of struggles and successes because we believe sharing our stories eases the difficulty of life. I'm Lisa Tilstra, your host. Let's jump in to today's conversation. My guest today is Rebecca Durrett. Rebecca designs and facilitates coaching and learning solutions that adapt organizational, systemic team and national cultures. She has more than 20 years experience, has worked in more than 60 countries, and is a mentor, accreditor, and trainer of other coaches and facilitators. Rebecca began her corporate career in IT, holding a variety of global roles and managing large teams. Rebecca is passionate about the diversity, equity, and inclusion space and trains facilitators for a global rollout whose aim is to touch more than 190,000 employees over 210 countries. She loves customer experience journey design and looks forward to integrating customer journeys with environmentally conscious strategy in a post-COVID world. Rebecca has worked for McKinsey & Company as a coach and facilitator internally and with clients. She's worked in all major industries and sectors and has deep experience in the IT, financial, telco, hospitality, and tourism, and oil and gas sectors. I had the pleasure of working with Rebecca on virtual workshops initially, she in Australia and me in Sri Lanka. Her energy, her authenticity, her forthrightness all stood out to me and I felt an immediate connection with her even though we didn't have a lot of one-on-one time and interaction. A couple months ago, we had the opportunity to work together in person and the connection just grew from there. Rebecca has so many interesting parts of her life and we truly just begin to touch on the very beginnings in this conversation. There are so many questions that I didn't have time to ask Rebecca So I am very hopeful that she will come back for future episodes as well and continue sharing about her life. During our conversation today, we explore Rebecca's journey to understanding that she's on the autism spectrum, what that means, and how it has helped explain so many nuances about her life and relationships. We talk about the value of simplicity, behavioral epigenetics, diversity, inclusion, and more. Rebecca, thank you so much for your willingness to share these pieces of your journey and story, your willingness to share and describe who you are and what you have learned and continue to learn is both inspiring and incredibly helpful to others who may experience similarities, but have not yet added the context of neurodiversity in the autism spectrum. Without any further delay, I invite you to please enjoy my conversation today with Rebecca Durrett. Rebecca, welcome to the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Thank you, Lisa. I'm pretty excited. (laughs) I am so excited. I actually have been telling multiple people about just little pieces about you. And I'm like, I'm so excited to have Rebecca on my podcast and learn more about you because I don't know that much. I've heard these little tiny snippets of different things in your life and I'm so intrigued and have a million questions for you. So thank you so much for being willing to uh, have this conversation. Well, it's your magnetism, Lisa. And if in the background you hear the cat, that you're just hearing the cat in the background. He is very welcome to join us at any time. <laughs> so 
it's funny that you say it's um, my magnetism because I feel very similar about you. And sometimes I just take a moment to reflect on our connection. We connected virtually. We were both faculty on a virtual program. And there was just something about you that I was drawn to your energy and your directness. And we were connecting a little bit behind the scenes to provide support to each other. And so the magnetism is is mutual. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So as we start, Rebecca, I'd like to ask each of my guests about this idea of making life less difficult. And the title of the podcast comes from a quote by Marianne Evans, what do we live for? if not to make life less difficult for each other. And I would love to hear from you. What does that mean to you? You know, it's just really interesting because when you said that, I really just tapped in there and I felt a lot of emotions come up because I don't know what what it was at the way you said it, making life less difficult. Um, Because life is so complex, isn't it? Yeah. Just kind of lay out some, I'm not going to go everywhere but just to lay out some of the complexity for me I think as you know I've been very ill on and off but a lot of on (laughs) since March this year with non-COVID related things you know I have five adopted kids Um, like you I'm doing online work and often not in the right time zone so that's just making life less difficult this year and I'm also on the autism spectrum so that's something that's quite new um and maybe that's the the sort of the emotions that have come in, mm. um, as you mentioned that. Because I think ever since I was little, I've craved simplicity. I've really craved how to cut things down. And um, I don't even know where to start. So can you help me with another question? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of help with the flow, please. Absolutely. I, there's already so many things that are standing out to me, Rebecca, number one, I mean, just the complexity of life, right? And over the last couple of years, there's been added complexity with COVID. You have had an illness separate from COVID and also stressful times to be dealing with other illnesses when COVID can complicate those things. Um, And I'm intrigued by you identifying that ever since you were little, you craved simplicity. And I'd love to hear What are some of your early memories and identifications around that craving for simplicity? So um, my parents are dancers and um, my, they met, they met, and my father was quite an unusual person. I just, I don't know how to introduce him, but he really believed in throwing things out. So even as a kid, I remember really enjoying getting rid of things, Hmm. you know, like at the end of a season for example. So simplicity would, for me was also about how many things I had as a kid and how many, um, you know, just so I loved, and I still to this day, I love getting out my winter clothes and throwing away summer things that, or no, sharing them with other people who need them more. But I love this kind of process of, of culling and cleaning out for me. And I, I started when I was little, you know, getting rid of papers and tearing things up. And there's some sort of ritual involved in that. And I think also just in terms of something that I grew up with, which was about focusing. And I think I, and this has been a weave, I'm doing this hand gesture of weaving in and out um, because like many people, I love so many things and I love doing so many things. So part of the simplicity has always been to bring it in. So as a kid, you know, I was allowed to 
to explore whether it was music or dance or sport or whatever it was, but I had this sense of keeping it simple um, by really focusing on things and then exploring them and going, is this something I really want to commit to? So I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, it's really intriguing to me. And I remember as a kid when my mom said we had to clean out the toy box, it was a struggle because then we found all the toys that we hadn't played with for ages. But as soon as my mom said we need to get rid of some things, then we wanted all the things that we haven't played with in the last six months. So I am so intrigued that even as a kid, you enjoyed that process of shedding things and giving things away and getting rid of things. See, my father asked a different question. He said, when did you last use this? Or when did you last wear this? Mm. So initially he used to help me with this because this was a family thing to make space. Mm-hmm. You, you couldn't invite new things in unless you got rid of old things. And it was really interesting because there was a real ritual with that. My mother used to wash clothes and iron them before she took them to, we have a like St. Vincent de Paul, a charity, you know. Mm-hmm. She would always wash and iron and nicely package everything. Um, she never, she said, you know, you don't give away to other people trash. You can put the trash in the bin. So if you don't think that it, so there was, there, it was more, it wasn't just culling. It, there was some sort of, I say programmatic ritual, but it was, there was some kind of thing about making space and, and, and I'll share one little story. You know, when my father passed, um, I went to clean out his place and this is a man who had a concertina folder that was completely empty except for the, you know, the three last bills that you need to prove for ID and stuff. So wow. clearly he kept all his admin. This is a person who's basically not so literate because he was brought up during the war and he, you know, English wasn't his language, etc. So it was just, and his, he had three pairs of trousers, um, house clothes, and two nice, like it was just, he was a minimalist. And for me, ah, that's it. That's it. There's something about minimalism, not coldness, but minimalism that I link with simplicity. Oh, thank you. <laughs> A coaching moment. I love it. I love it. And I, I deeply resonate, Rebecca. I have, I, I have not always had a minimalist mindset or desire to even be, but um, after many transitions in my life, I had some things where I was moving so many times and I realized it's so much easier to move if I don't have all this stuff and I don't need all this stuff. Um, I don't, and now I don't want all this stuff. (laughs) So I, and I love, I just want to take a moment to say, I love what you're talking about the ritualistic part and the way that your mom washed and ironed clothes. And um, I think of um, what's her name? Marie Condi is the one that's, you know, like kind of, introduced this idea of getting rid of things. And she talks about saying, if you really like something, but you haven't worn it in forever and you're not going to wear it, thank it. Say, thank you. Thank you, sweater. Uh, You've been a wonderful part of my life. And now I'm going to pass you along to someone else. And it sounds kind of silly in some ways, but I have, I've stepped into that and it, it makes it a little ritualistic. Yeah, I think that's that's lovely. Um, I don't know too much about Marie Kondi except that the the whole folding thing because I know a lot of my yes. friends got into folding. <laughs> but what was interesting about mum? Mum, she would iron things that she wouldn't iron normally. So there was this really this big presentation. I mean, not that she made a big deal of it, but it was this kind of thing. So uh, the gratitude, the thank you for it, 
Mm. Um, not just wherever it was being given, but to the, the garment. There's something about gratitude as a practice, isn't there? There really is. Yeah. I, I'm curious. I'm going to ask you this question. We'll just see where it leads for you, Rebecca. When you think about your life, when was maybe the first time or a very early time that you looked around and you said, oh, wow, life is hard, harder than I thought it was going to be? I think I can answer that from the first day of school. Mm. So I'm going to fast forward and then I'll come back. Um, You know, I think many women aren't diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. And then when women are diagnosed, it often comes late in life. It's not a, it's a massive generalization. So for me, it made sense when I found out. But from the first day of school, there were two things that really I went, oh my God, this is so complicated. First of all, I didn't know I didn't belong. I thought I belonged, right? I mean, I had friends, I had things, I was friends with the kids my parents were friends with. So it's not like, you know, But when I got to school on the first day, we were separated out, you know, the kids with the smelly food and the kids without the smelly food. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first person that came and talked to me was a young Japanese, I mean, we were like five or something, so a Japanese girl. And it was very clear that there were the Australians and then there was everybody else. So I, like on the first day of school, I just, first of all, I felt so alone because I didn't join on the very first day of that year, Mm. just the way the system works here. You have to join when you're a certain age and it depends on the birthday and things. So, you know, my parents were very (laughs) keen to get me off to various different daycare and things because they were happy with the babysitting idea. And so that was the first time that I really went, oh, wow, I don't belong And then also, of course, there was this, the sensory input, there was the other stuff that really came from, you know, being on the spectrum and not feeling so um, comfortable in many settings. And yeah, so that was really the first thing. And that just accentuated because there was always this us and them group, you know, and that experience was with me pretty much throughout the whole of school there was I just felt this us and them and that seemed to be so complicated because I didn't understand why sometimes I was in the us and sometimes I was in the them now maybe if I hadn't have been or if I wasn't on the spectrum I would but I don't even think that I think many kids I don't think it's you need to be neurally diverse to go what is going on here you know how is it that sometimes I'm the best friend of the most popular girl and then I'm not invited to anything or something. So how does that work? It's incredibly difficult. And, and I'm curious of what your thoughts are on how 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 you as, as kids at that time got divided into those groups, right? And it sounds like they were dynamic and changed. So it was even, you know, challenging from that way where it wasn't just clear cut us and them. Um, was it something that the kids kind of just naturally created themselves was there other external influences that shaped that well I mean the first day at the first lunch because we used to bring our lunch to school I think unlike an American system often where you get served lunch or have a canteen we all brought our lunch so all the other kids we all had lunch boxes full of weird things like rice and beans or thick sandwiches with thick smelly cheese and thick salami and everything was thick thick and the other kids, like the one, the them kids, the Australian kids, they had like pre-sliced bread with what we used to call plastic cheese. It's cheese singles where you unpack them from a plastic thing. You know the ones I mean, mm-hmm. the slices, pre-sliced, and butter. Or they had 
crisps, chips in their in their white bread. We had black bread, brown bread, grainy bread, like all this other weird bread that you would only get at the one delicatessen that was like an hour away. You know what I mean? So the teacher actually divided us. And it was interesting because Mrs. Brown, get this, she sat with the Australians and Mrs. Hatsatoris, get that name, sat with all the other kids. So even the teachers kind of in a way self-divided. Wow. Tell me a little bit about the culture, because I'm not sure of the culture. You know, I think about you being Australian, living in Australia. So give a little bit more of the cultural context, why you weren't with the Australian kids. So I'm very old. So we're talking about 1970. Um, it was uh, in the Australian system. I don't want to go into too much detail, but in, with government schools, it really depends on the area that you live in. If you live in a good area, the government schools are great. So we moved from where my parents lived because my mother wanted me to have a good education. Mm. Um, so we moved to this other area. So first of all, wrong demographic. Parents are dancers, wrong side of the tracks. Um, dark skin. My mother had olive brown skin, and in the summer it went quite dark. Grandfather, dark skin with um, Asiatic eyes. Um so there were things that stood out. You know, my father was a bit of a hippie. You know, it was the 70s. Mm-hmm. So it was like there were these two two demographic groups. So the other group was um, all the other kids whose parents wanted them to get a good education who moved into this great suburb. <laughs> and so we also lived in apartments, not houses. So there were many things that there were many different ways that you could cut the cake. Right. And and when we belonged, it was either because of sport, you know, if you played sport well. So I was really good at ball sports. Um, so, I mean, not excellent, but okay. So, you know, there was an entree there. Um, and, you know, I also did quite well academically for a certain, in certain things. So there was, there were times, and I would say that my um, radar for this is amplified. So, because I also have an empathy uh, very high empathy with being neurally diverse. So I think if you might ask people who went to school with me, although I have verified it with kids that I still know because I have two friends that I, I've known since four and they verified it recently. One of them is also dark-skinned with very, um, uh, you know, curly, frizzy hair and the other one is uh, comes from an Italian Jewish family. So they also resonate Having said that, other people might go, maybe that wasn't our experience. So I don't want to make it out to be a bad thing. It was just what I noticed. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I'm curious, in that time, you didn't have the language around being neurally diverse. You didn't have the language about autism spectrum or sensory, you know, um, what, what and who helped make that time a little less difficult? So the first time I thought, wow, the way I process information is different. I mean, I, this is adult language, but I, I got it. So what happened was a teacher made a joke, what I thought was a joke about my sandwich, you know, and she said, oh, that's a very healthy sandwich. That must be because your parents are dancers. So I felt completely outed, right? I mean, for me, the way I heard that, I freaked out. I ran into the class, she tried to calm me down and I picked up a chair like a lion tamer and I kept her awake and I just kept on um, quickly swiveling my body and revolving so that she couldn't come near me. Eventually, and all of the kids could see this, eventually she talked me down 
cut a very long story short, I had two teachers that were very compassionate. She became a friend of my parents. I didn't really like that. Um, but she did handle me with care. Like she realized that to out me with my sound. I mean, it was just, this was after two, three years of being separated out for our food. So the last thing I wanted at the head of, because she checked people's lunches. They went through this health kick at some point, you know, in the early 70s. And they would check people's lunches because the Australian kids were bringing chips and putting chocolate between two white bread and all the other kids were bringing rice and beans and salad and, and these <laughs> packages. So they were trying to, they realised that there was also a about health right and teeth it all just happened at the same time I think in Australia so she was really somebody who helped me navigate primary school um, all the time regardless of when I left her class or not um, and high school was just high school was a nightmare <laughs> I had I had friends I have to say I I have the gift where not my gift but I've been given this gift where there have been amazing friends in my life and that I've had for a long time. It so. is a gift. The people in our life who are able to be present with us um, to, I think, I'm not sure if I'm remembering the correct word, but maybe you use the word comfort with one of the teachers. Like she was able to be present and, and help comfort you in those moments of distress. And that grabbing me because that's uh, other teachers. Like there was another teacher who said, who told me, she told my mother at parent-teacher night that I was really cold because I didn't want to sit her lap and be cuddled. But, you know, the message that I got at home was don't let go and sit on anybody's lap and be cuddled because yeah. that's not setting yourself up for being safe, right? So, Right. Rebecca, would you be willing to share more about your journey of learning about being on the autism spectrum there's more talk now about neurodiversity. I just read a book called Divergent Mind that is really focused on on women and the fact that, you know, women are so underdiagnosed in the autism spectrum in AD, with ADHD, with sensory processing um, disorders and, and, and differences because we're used to seeing these um, characteristics in, in boys and they show up different in in girls. And so I think you're not alone in being a woman who found out much later in life, oh, this is why all of these things happened to me when I was younger. So jump in where it makes sense, but I'd love to hear more about your your journey of discovering this. Um, I'm going to start with the end end story, okay, because this happened last week, and I think that this is the the happy ending to the the beginning. So I'm just going to show you, but I'll I'll explain verbally what this is. This is a card that they leave on the tables in the hotel that says I'm taken, right? It says I'm taken, meaning the table's reserved. So when they take you to your seat, if you get up and leave to the buffet, they put a card down that says I'm taken. Now, long story short, the server. I'm leaving and she says, thank you very much, madam. And I said, thank you very much, Taken. And I go to the, I go to the, um, you know, and I sign the bill. I go to the register, I sign the bill and I leave. Next day I'm meeting with Bucktush, somebody we know very well. Um, and uh, a, a man comes and he puts that down there too. And I've gone, oh, that's interesting, two people with the same name. You know, because in the US you have people say, hi, my name's so-and-so, I'm your server. Yes. Or I'm Rebecca. I'm Lisa. So 
And then I went, oh, that's a, is it a very common name? Like in my head. And then all of a sudden I go, oh, I'm taken. So then I start laughing. And this is to me. And then I tell Bakhtash actually um, what, um, what happened, what transpired. And then I actually tell my participants because they ask me what it's to be neurally diverse. And the feeling of freedom and the feeling of being able to laugh at myself mm. is wonderful instead of feeling ashamed at getting it wrong. You know, and that has been, that's the end point is actually, and I feel a lot of emotion. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice as I'm saying that because to be able to laugh at yourself for doing for, for for that kind of thing. But, I mean, in my mind, it's completely logical. I'm Cindy, I'm your waiter. I'm Phoebe, I'm your waiter. That's what I had when I was in San Diego a few weeks, people saying, I'm so-and-so, and I thought, is, and really my thought was, isn't that sweet? They help you remember their name. But, so that's the end point, being able to laugh at it and kind of be able to share it hmm. um, freely without any kind of like self-flagellation. I mean, it, it started at the beginning at that moment where, you know, I held up the chair and I thought I've never seen any other kid do that. Hmm. Uh, and the experience of... So it kind of, it, it, it evolves, but the experience of some things coming incredibly easy to me at school and some things like I just did not get, it just didn't make sense and it was so frustrating. Like, and I would get stuck on something, logarithms. I was great at logarithms because I'm great. You give me a map, you give me direction. It's orienteering, if you're going to do an orienteering competition, get me. Hmm. Coordinate, fantastic. But I was stuck because I was like, what do we do with what logarithms? You just need to know them. No, well, but what do you, how do you apply it? Mm. And I would just get stuck. And, you know, my, my father would say, he would swear and he'd say, oh, it's all rubbish. You shouldn't even have an education. You don't even need an education, right? That's because he didn't have an education. He didn't believe he needed one. Whereas my mother came from a different group of people who were very much refugees saying, you have to have an education. You have to, because that's the way you can make it, you know. Mm -hmm. So I had that experience of some things just not making sense and, and knowing that I was hooked up on something that nobody else was hooked up on. There was that, there was the, um, and of course that kept on. And, you know, I, I, I kind of noticed that as I was starting my work, um, I would, uh, and this is through my working career, um, like I'm really, I know I'm really sensitive. I know I really feel things really deeply, but I would get told I was rude. And I would be like, what was rude about that? Mm. Like, what, what is rude about that? Like, how can that be rude? <laughs> For example, I would just write a text message and someone would say, that's really brutal. And I'd be like, but it's the truth. And I wouldn't, and it wasn't that it, it wasn't that I wrote it, sometimes I did write things rudely, but it wasn't that I wrote, uh, that I thought of it being rude. I just thought, well, it's obvious, right? Mm. Just say it and, directly. And I, you know, and so there were, there were social cues. So there was information, it was, there were social cues. And then there were my reactions, how I felt and what I felt was normal, you know, and like, um, uh, I'm just trying to think. So, for example, I mean, I, I love being alone, but there was just sensory input that was just just too much. And I just noticed that other people kind of thought it was great. And I went, wow, I'm really processing differently. So that happened. Um, 
And I think I got to a certain age where, I, you know, I started to hear that the word autism, autistic, but it was always used. It's all, I mean, it's still to this day in Australia used quite negatively. Like people say, oh, so-and-so, oh, she's on the spectrum. She must be. She's so this, mm-hmm. right? Instead of, it's kind of like, um, I'm going to say this on the podcast, um, please forgive me. But, you know, in the early, you know, 20 years ago, people used to say spastic. Like if somebody was uncoordinated, they say, oh, you're a spazzo, you're spastic. Mm. Right. Um, so it's just a language thing. So when I heard that language, um, of course, it wasn't something I wanted to be and step into and own because it was used in such a, 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 negative, a negative way. And it always was equated with bad, wrong, those kinds of things. Um, and then I think I started to go, you know, I really feel I am. And I started to read books um what's her name temple something or i don't know i'm really brandon yeah yeah i read that book and you know i don't like because my parents raised me in a certain way they kind of forced me out of certain mannerisms Mm -hmm. i used to have terrible tics for example and they would be very embarrassing and people would talk about them or i would have certain uh, habits that i had to repeat it wasn't ocd it was just that's what made me feel comfortable and safe. Um, less, and this is my imagining because I really know nothing about OCD, but it wasn't repetitive actions or about being clean or something. It would be something like, uh, well, I can't remember. I, I, I needed my, my, my waist belt. I needed it to be in a particular position for me to feel safe. Hmm. Just weird, weird stuff. Um, not repeated, but I just, there were just certain things had to be in a certain way. And as I read more, um, and of course, the first time I saw people on YouTube or read books and things, I thought, oh, I'm not like that. It's not like that. But as I started to read about how they think and not what people are seeing or what I'm seeing, then I went, oh, oh yeah. And then it was finally through a friend of mine who has, or a colleague who has two autistic children who we were talking and they said um, something. And I said, you know, I always thought I was autistic because I felt safe with him. You know, I felt safe to say it and him not make a joke about it and say, oh, yeah, you're pro-, you know, like, because I'd said it once or twice to other people and they kind of really made, a, uh, like, made fun of me for saying it and just went, oh, yeah, you know, anything for attention. Or mm. and, I, and he said, yeah, I've often thought that. And I said, oh, what made you think that? And then he just, he said, oh, because I see your empathy he said and i see the way you process and i see it's different the information that we're all receiving i see that you're hearing slightly different things um and so then i think that was what year are we in 2022 um so it was probably i'm 57 now so it was probably when i was about 48 so it was really late and you know i it has just been so helpful knowing it's just helpful navigating like for example yesterday I met two people online for the first time and I said I'm so glad to meet you thank you for initiating this I would never have initiated thank you for initiating it um and I was able to say look you know uh, apologies if any of my emails have been rude I'm really crap at emails I look at them three times and I think I'm writing a nice email and they said oh no they're okay you know but when I when you tell people that you're on the spectrum Mm -hmm. and that you mean well then somehow it makes life easier. If I'd have done that when I was 20 or younger, I think I would have had a much smoother and a less traumatic experience, life experience. 
And it strikes me that it takes courage and it's there's real vulnerability to say it to people. Like, okay, well, I'm I'm on the spectrum. And so to just be forthright and direct and say, sorry if my emails came across rude, there's vulnerability in that. And yet I love what I I mean, it brings me back to the theme of making life less difficult. It is sometimes it's those acts that we do that are vulnerable and they, and they are, it's a little bit different, perhaps, I mean, I'll be curious of what you say. It strikes me as listening to you. Um, I feel like, oh, that there's, there's a difficulty in that of just sharing and, and saying directly. And yet the outcome is it makes it less difficult. Um, so I've really been experimenting with this because I did work at McKinsey and company for close to nine years and I never said it then at all never and you know there are people that love me and people that don't love me at all um and I think a lot of a lot of my life at the firm could have been easier had I been more confident about saying it now I'm saying it and it's quite easy and it's received really well so that led me to contemplate what had stopped me before because it does it makes my life so much easier right? Like I'm able to say to a team leader, listen, if I take us off track with a, a side a side question, it's, you know, like, for example, you and I were together and I noticed there was a, mat- a mathematical error in the timing, the addition of the timing. And I get hooked on that. I can't move on to the next one until we go, is it 20 minutes or is it 40? Because mm-hmm. it says 40, but actually the timing is 20. I can't go on. So I'm able to actually say that. And then it's so lovely to have a team lead say, Rebecca, t- I'll take that offline with you. Or I don't know the answer to that. I'll get, okay, that's fine. Mm. If you don't know the answer, I'm full. But if you're saying you know the answer and I'm not hearing the answer. Mm-hmm. So what stopped me from saying it earlier? I think, you know, if I'm really honest, it's about belonging. You know, we I feel like one of humankind's greatest needs is to feel a sense of belonging, whatever that looks like to different people. And the upshot of that is not to be excluded, which is like, first, can I not be excluded? And second of all, can I actually belong or whatever goes in that spectrum? I mean, not spectrum, in that um, continuum. Um, and also like this incredible fear of um, of being ejected from the system. So this is not about exclusion with people, but this is about you don't have a job, you don't have a livelihood, how do you earn, you're useless, you're, you know, the, the, the self-talk. Mm. And I think the third thing, um, and this is something very new, is that when I was looking at one of the reasons for not saying it, I realized that epigenetically I'm carrying a lot of trauma. So epi- the understanding of epigenetics also helped me. So losing the fear of needing a job, knowing that I can get a job and I can do anything pretty much, mm. not having this need to belong everywhere knowing I belong in places and then this the the helpful understanding of epigenetics it's really powerful those those three things that you identified I'm like they're really meaningful to me too like I feel like there there's meaning there at the core of for humans with or without the neurodiversity like I mean it, it sounds like you're hitting on some really core things that are common to humanity and and i don't know if that i don't want it to take away from the like the meaning for you and what freed up but it, but it seems like it's a 
potentially a both and. I'd love to hear from you. So what, what resonates for you about that? I mean, I deeply want to belong and have in me that a fear of rejection. And I know that at times I have to catch myself because I will, I, in order to protect myself, I will reject someone else before they have an opportunity to reject me. We've all done that, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for being sharing that. Yeah. 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 And I, and I think I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about the epigenetics. I think, um, you know, many people listening will understand that, but there might be a few people who don't really understand the epigenetics and the trauma that can be passed down generationally. Um, would you share a little bit more about that? So look, I'm, I'm not a scientist. And I was actually in a group last week where somebody said, oh, I did the epigenetics of, of liver damage. And I was like, Whoa. <laughs> uh, my leg. I said, love to talk to you about it, but I think we need some one on one time for that. Um, so I just want to preface by saying I am not an expert. So this is just my understanding and my how I've made meaning of it. Um, is that, you know, our cells without evolving, without evolution, actually adapt. I'm going to use that word to trauma from previous generations. Where I first heard about this, I was doing an online course during COVID. No, several years ago. God, everything seems COVID. But anyway, it was <laughs> it was pre twenty twenty with a professor in the US who was, and because I do a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion work, and um, it one of the topics in this online course because it was a. Uh, uh, basically on um, post-traumatic slave syndrome. So it's Dr. Joy DeGruy, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. And um, so I was learning about the African-American experience. So as an Australian um, white person, you know, doing a lot of DEI, I wanted to really understand at multiple different levels. And I heard that and then I thought, wow, that's so true for our Indigenous people, you know, and I, it's so that we, we, we carry health issues, we carry um, sort of uh, certain, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this language, certain distrust. I don't have the scientific language for that. Um, but as I started to listen to the African-American experience and then translate that into what it might be like to, for, for First Nations people all over, and also, you know, hearing about this and going, I don't want to do that to my kids um, mm. who, you know, have their own trauma because they're adopted um, from different things. Um, and just going, wow, this is probably true for people who are kids of refugees and things, you know, etc. cetera. Yeah. So for me, epigenetics, they've done studies. So to give some specifics, um, they've done studies on women who were pregnant when they were starving during the you know first world war or second world war and then the kids and the grandkids and the great grandkids are still carrying um various different behaviors and mindsets and so it's stored in our cells there's a physicality to it um but it definitely affects our you know behaviors and us you know, skills behaviors mindsets it's fascinating to me rebecca and I recently had this interaction and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into the detail, but there was a, a story that was told about um, a grandfather 
and some of the reflections that this man had towards the end of life that were quite negative. And this is this is a man who had been through very traumatic things associated with World War II. And at the end of his life, he's reflecting and like a lot of negativity there. And that was a conversation. I learned about that in, in one space. And then almost the next day heard about this person's grandson saying almost the exact same things about his life, right? At a much earlier stage in life. But it made me think about the generational traumas and what you're you're describing. And the question that comes up for me is how do we how do we help ourselves and perhaps others see for those of us who are earlier in our, our life, how can we kind of increase our awareness and I mean, what can we do about it, right? If we are behaving, acting, thinking in ways that are related to previous generations' experience and trauma. Um, so I'll just share with you, I just got into a hook because I was like, I don't have the language, I don't have the language, I don't have the language. So I just went offline and Googled it. Mm. And I'd love to share this because I think we can then go into how do we do this? It says behavioral epigenetics. So that's the difference my friend was or colleague was talking about, um, you know, uh, biochemical epigenetics. So there's a whole different range. Yeah. Um, but behavioral epigenetics is a field of study examining the role of epigenetics in shaping behavior. It seeks to explain how nurture shapes nature, where nature refers to biological heredity and nurture refers to virtually everything that occurs during a lifespan. Hmm. So um, there's many different types of um, epigenetics, but I guess the one, the one we're talking about is mm-hmm. how does behavior in previous generations or their experiences translate yeah. into it? Yeah, it's. I it, think we're all we're all swimming in it. <laughs> yeah, we we are, and I guess in the in the case of you know the individual that I'm thinking of, and I and I think I have been here at times in my own life too, where I can feel like the victim. I had no control over what happened to previous generations, right? None of us get to choose where we're born, who we're born to, you know, like the previous generations experiences and things like that. And from your perspective, what what is helpful to shift out of a victim mindset into a more proactive, okay, well, here's the cards I've been dealt. How can I respond in the most effective way? So... I mean, a, a technique I use is I ask myself a transformational question and I have only one because I like to build a muscle and have it to be my automatic reaction. So when I'm triggered, I just go, who do I want to be? Mm-hmm. And i give you an example. Um, every time I get called up by somebody who I perceive as having authority, I get into this spin. If I get an email from somebody who I perceive is in authority, even if it's three o'clock in the morning, I have to do something about it. Like I just, I, 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 I always feel like if my manager would call me or somebody I'm working with who I perceive as being in authority or having a higher in the hierarchy and they called me to their office, I would feel like a kid outside a headmaster's office. Mm. And, you know, this was a couple of years ago. I was like, Oh my God, like I'm in, I'm nearly 60. I mean, I'm, I wasn't, but I was halfway there. I was like, nearly <laughs> And I'm like, how is that possible that I'm still responding like this? The person's younger than me. I mean, like, I was just like, who do I want to be? I don't want to be this person. 
Wow. Where is this coming from? So I think one of the key things is to actually pause and notice. That's key. And then then I reflected and I went, you know, my grandfather just to just my grandfather didn't have any weddings of his photo because he always thought they were coming after him because he escaped from his old country and he came to Australia via via several countries. You know, my mother was the first person ever in her family to be born and raised in the same country. Wow. Uh, and so there's this kind of this fear of authority that you're never quite safe. And that's why I have to succeed. And that's what drove me in a work environment to be so horrifically competitive. Um, maybe not obvious to other people, but really competitive. And it was this drive. So I think part of it is like, you know, pause, notice and reflect and then try and find out and go, is this mine? This is not mine. This is not my burden. Actually, this is from previous people. My father had it as well. The minute there was a war, my father would buy tin food, mm. you know, and and this kind of um, agitation that comes whenever there's something out of our control. And guess what? There is so much out of our control. Yeah. And the response or the reaction that I have to these moments uh, you know, and it could be the weather, you know, with the crazy weather we've been having. I don't know if you've experienced it, but, you know, this, I mean, I know in the US, I don't know in Sri Lanka, but this crazy weather we've been having with heat and cold and wind and wet and just completely out of character. I mean, I definitely can't control nature, let alone, how, you know, the company's doing or let alone whether it's et cetera, et cetera. So, um, Part of making life easier for me is just like pause, ask myself a transformational question, my simple one, um, and then reflect and, and, and just ask that second question, which is, is this really mine? Mm. Is this my reaction or is this a reaction? And, you know, this is nothing. I think the other thing about how we get um, these kind of, I'm just going to call them epigenetic behaviours and reactions is they're not said to us. The said ones we can unpack, easy. Yeah. Got to shine your shoes. A lady always does this. You can go, actually, that's not true for me. A lady doesn't have to do that. I'm not going to do that, right? That's easy to unpack because it's said and you can disagree. Mm -hmm. But when these things are kind of handed to you with love without any words and you go, well, look, thank you for your love, but actually this is not my reality. This is not my burden. This is not my thing. Mm. So... I don't know. Does does did I make sense? Because that's the other part. I don't often know if when I'm talking, I make sense. So. I I resonate so deeply. Yes, it makes so much sense, Rebecca. And I think there's incredible wisdom in what you're sharing. And it it strikes me that um, to come back to our earlier conversation about complexity and the complexity of life and the seemingly paradoxical pull towards simplicity <laughs> there's something that connects for me there and and i think in my own life as i have unpacked some of the reflexive behaviors that i have in certain situations there's some real complexity there and yet going through the complexity of of kind of going back trying to figure out well where does this connect to is it mine i love the question who do i want to be it leads to greater simplicity and yet wow it can be really challenging and really difficult to to get through the complexity to a more simple place if that makes sense 
Yeah, completely. I mean, it's really interesting because I think when we notice some of our reactions, not responses, our reactions to things that are completely out of control, I, 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 I feel, well, at least for me, it's very informative, hmm. right? Because I go, that reaction is not necessarily in line with the rain that's happening outside. Yes, exactly. I'm just giving, you know, mm-hmm. or that person doing that is not in line with my reaction towards that. Yes, and and in my experience, a, a couple of years ago, a little over a year ago, I identified, here's a situation that happens, say, between my husband and I, that on a scale of importance is a two out of 10. And yet my emotional reaction is an eight out of 10. And the it was a really good starting place for me just to acknowledge that and be aware of it. And even in my own mind to be able to say, this situation is not that significant. And yet look at my intense emotional reaction. <laughs> what is that about? Um, and I ended up working with a, a therapist doing EMDR um, therapy to help, you know, discover and reprocess. And, you know, it really is like a process of rewiring the brain a little bit. That's been helpful for me in the, in the journey. Um, But I think starting with that awareness, the pausing that you said, the reflecting um, again, that transformational question, who do I want to be? It's um, it's really powerful. So interesting because what an amazing skill. Like imagine if we taught kids two questions, ask yourself in the playground, how important is this and on a scale of one to 10 and what's my emotional reaction? Imagine if you taught kids from a young age, how amazing that would be, you know, how amazing that would be. That would have been so helpful to me to go, how important is this? Actually, it's like a one, I don't care. And yet I'm so invested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I was never allowed to buy anything from the tuck shop, the canteen right? I wasn't allowed because my parents thought the food from home was enough and we're on a budget. And anyway, you're doing dance and sports. So why would you want anything from the canteen anyway? It just sells junk. I got super invested when they were taking away one chocolate bar because that's the way I am because all my friends were really upset. So I was like completely wanting to, I mean, if I'd have had that, just as an example, it's a very small thing. If I'd said, how important is this chomp bar? I don't even know what a chomp bar is. I remember the name called a chomp, a chomp. I never ate it. I never ate finger buns. And when they decided to take them from the canteen, I don't know why I got so, I was almost like, I don't know, Rosie the Riveter. I mean, honestly, I was about to take, you know, put bombs there. I mean, I really, I mean, at a young kid, I was like going to start up a rebellion about this. And of course I got into trouble and I created so much friction around me. Mm. It's got nothing to do with anything I was interested in. I just was overreacting. And why was that? Because something was being taken away. Mm. Yeah. Privilege was being taken away. Mm. And that was the reaction I saw from previous generations. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I have been reflecting on with the idea of epigenetics and generational trauma gets passed along. We, I feel like at this point in, in history and human development, we're, we're in the very early stages of talking about this, discovering, understanding the brain more deeply. And my hope is that we can be part of the shift towards passing along 
generational healing. Mm, how beautiful. That's oh, so interesting. You know, like I have, I feel like pretty much 99% of the time I've been so careful. Like, for example, I had an argument with my daughter the other day because I asked her to do something. And I said, how long have I been asking you to do this? And she said, four years. And I said, okay. Now, and then I did something that I was so proud of. I said, listen, I'm going to say something to you, but I want you to know I love you. This has got nothing to do with my love for you or nothing to do with how I see you as a human being or nothing to do with how fantastic I think you are. And X, Y, Z, you piss me off. I have to ask you for four years to do the same thing. I don't understand what the block is. All I ask you to do is to fill out a spreadsheet to tell me how you're spending the money because I keep sending you money, like a thousand bucks. I'm sending you money and I have no idea. And when you send me the spreadsheet back, it doesn't even add up to a thousand. So for me, I don't understand what's going on. I have no insight into how you're spending your money. And it takes away my trust from you. Mm-hmm. So she was like, oh, and we, had that, we unpacked that. And I said, okay, so what have you heard? Mm. And she said that. And I said, and what else did you hear? And she said that you love me, blah, blah, blah. I get emotional talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I was so happy because that was something that my mother passed on, which was this linking of how she felt about me with how I performed as a, as a you wow. know, as a kind of a you know, whether it was academically or, you know, in sport or ballet or anything that my, I really felt that, of course, that wasn't true, but in the communication. So to your point about how do we act as agents of healing? Well, that's not quite how you said it, but that's what I heard. It's like, we act as agents of healing. I think one of the things is to be so mindful of, of language. And that's so hard being on the spectrum. So I have to work really hard about that. Mm. I mean, today there was a person in the post office and I said, thank you very much, sir. And then I took a double look and I thought, no idea whether that's a sir or not. Mm. I, I mean, I don't know how he wants to identify whether he wants to be a them or a they or a him or a, you know, and in the, I'm so lucky in my post office because I live in a bit of a crazy area. We have, you know, a transgender person. We have a woman in a hijab. We have a very diverse post office. It's fantastic. Wow. And yet I don't have, I, and it's my work. And I go, Rebecca, why did you do that? Mm. Am I making him or they responsible for how I refer to them? Mm. So I find that language and I find that this, um, this emphasis that, and I say the young people of today, <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's emergent, right? It is emergent. It's not coming from the 50-year-olds. It's coming from you know, the younger, the younger people saying, no, actually, I don't want to be referred to like this. And I don't want these stereotypes. And I'm actually going to call you in on them. And I'm going to let you know every time you do that. And I actually think that that's a wonderful thing. Because I think a lot, although it's easier to unpack the verbal, I'm going to say this out loud for the first time, Lisa, so it might sound really ridiculous, and I might rescind it. But I find I feel like the verbal is an access or a lever into our attitudes. Mm. So when I got on my, I was getting on my bicycle and I was reflecting on what I'd said to that person about assuming that they wanted to be a he, um, and I thought, see, underlying, even though I do this work and even though I'm very passionate, when I say this work I mean diversity, equity, inclusion and justice, I'm very passionate 
I have inside of me attitudes that I don't even know I have. And I'm so surprised that they come out with my language. So somehow language is easier to unpack. It's easier for that person to go, well, that that woman's got gray hair or whatever. It's not part, but what it's a, it's an indication I feel for me to say, oh, deep down, I still do have some stereotyping. Not mm. that I believe in stereotyping. I believe in freedom, but I'm still trying to sort in binary did Mm -hmm. any of that make sense and how did it sound because i think it's just come out for the first time it makes a lot of sense and i think about a recent interaction i had with a a friend of mine and the person that he is dating is non-binary and so he's talking about and says their name and then is talking about using the pronoun and, you know, is saying they, um, the name of the individual in, in my language and perspective and understanding is a female sounding name. So I find myself having to be so intentional of this conversation, not to it just start saying she, and I noticed the difficulty in my brain to even say they, what do they do for, you know, work? And, and yet by the end of the conversation, it came much easier and and it wasn't a long conversation. I mean, less than five minutes. And so I think that language is really powerful and it can shift our, our behavior a little bit and our perspective. So I think what you're saying is, is really important and, and also to recognize okay, well, this is new for a lot of us to have to not just use that binary he, she gendered language. And and it's okay for that to be challenging. And it's okay that I know that I'll make some mistakes. And and yet, am I, like, for me, it's important, like, I, and I, am I working on this, right? And so that that five minutes of struggle to shift that use of pronoun for me was really impactful, um, I think in a positive way. So I, I'm not sure if that, it links for me. I'm not sure if it links <laughs> directly for what you were saying, but it links. <laughs> I think it's fantastic because as you were speaking, I was thinking neuroplasticity, mm. what the language of um, being disciplined about the words. Yes. Like what I feel like you were able to do is rewire your brain a little bit and I think that that and if we get back to autism I think there were things that my parents kind of almost forced in terms of neuroplasticity like forced me to relearn Mm. um, which has been helpful hurtful and helpful Mm. so yeah it's really interesting and 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 I love that people are now saying actually I don't want to be called that (laughs) you know I struggle. My name's Rebecca. It's a long name. And I don't mind being called Beck, Becca, and by two people, Becky. But I'm not a Becky. I don't feel like a Becky. And for years I allow people to call me Becky. I don't want to be called Becky. And so I'm so happy that I now have permission to say, actually, listen, I don't know you, so can you please call me Rebecca or ma'am? That's how I want to be called. You're from a phone company. I don't know you. Don't call me Becky. What gives you the right... Imagine I'm, I'm calling you from, I don't know what the local MTN or whatever the local phone company is, and I say, hey, Lisa, how are you going? No, you're a customer. 
Mm-hmm. So the sense of also having more, um, what is it, agency, that's the word that I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. I think we're also being taught that we have more individual agency. Mm-hmm. Certain cultures, because I also would say that this is quite a privileged place that we're in to be able to call ourselves a they or to be able to say, you know what, I'm not a Becky, because in some places you just wouldn't get away with doing that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's so funny. I'll I'll share this little quick story. I was back in the U.S. for a couple of months recently, and I was driving through the state of Kentucky and stopped at a gas station to get some coffee. I was getting tired and grabbed some coffee, put it on the counter to check out, and then I said, I'm just going to grab a bottle of water. And the woman said, oh, that's fine, beautiful. Take your time. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks because I was like, is this, is she hitting on me? Is she harassing me? And then it took my brain a couple of seconds to be like, that's just the language of the South in, in America. And then, and then I'm checking out and she's like, you know, have a nice drive, sweetie. And <laughs> so it's, it's so funny since I've been away from that culture for so long <laughs> and to hear myself called right like it's it's like that casual and I, I there was a kind of like part of me that was like nah, don't call me that and then it was just like it's okay Lisa like there's no harm here <laughs> there's nothing to be fearful of but I really did have a moment of whoa what's happening here <laughs> I raise you a story but it's not a it's not a positive like that you know sometimes there's an older generation of Australian male and I was getting on a bus and I got on the bus, so I didn't get this, but, you know, some other younger person got on the bus and the bus driver said, something, 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 little lady. And and the person was probably in their 20s, I would guess, and they turned around and they said, what about me gives you the idea that I'm a little lady? And so then that also went, okay, so into your, uh, your kind of thought on, you know, how do we, how do we sort of, support growth and what was that thing that we were saying like be an agent for um we were talking about for, like the trauma healing like passing along like, yeah healing. healing thank you um is also how do we do it mm. because that person what i'm also brutally aware of is on the other side like had you turned around to that person and said don't call me beautiful or what about me says little lady right Mm-hmm. cognizance that as we are in this agency for, for agency for healing that w- agent for healing god hold on <laughs> rewind agent for healing how do we do it in a way that people can hear because they're either going to have two reactions that person has a problem and not learn or feel ashamed yeah and go oh i shouldn't have done that Oftentimes it's the first, but sometimes it's the second. Mm-hmm. And so I'm also cognizant of that. How do we do this in a way that is inclusive and not saying you're wrong? Because mm-hmm. that's then just another generational thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And and how do we do that? I mean, what I mean, especially because you do a lot of work in the diversity and equity, inclusion, and justice space, Rebecca. Like what? What do you recommend? And I recognize for myself, if it had been a man saying that to me, I would have, I would have bristled and I would have, I would have given the cold shoulder, right? Like, and I had to like process, this is a, 
this is a, a lady, a cashier, like she's, she's truly being friendly. Like, you know, and I could assess that very quickly. Um, but in, in times when I might say something that is, uh, inaccurate and, and can be offensive to someone. And yet I don't know that, or I receive it. What is a way to, to address that? And, and hopefully in a way that builds a bridge versus puts up more of a, a wall. I'm not always the best role model. I have the theory down, I think for me, <laughs> but I just want to be clear. I'm not always the best role model. I don't always do it. But if we're thinking about keeping things simple, I think the one thing is to come from a place of curiosity. Mm. I mean, you've demonstrated this so beautifully um, today is being curious. And I think that's the simplest way is what did you mean when you said little lady? Mm. Like, oh, I just, it's just a habit. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I just bristled when you said that because it doesn't resonate with me mm. or what did you mean when you said beautiful? Or is that a normal thing to say here? I'm not used to that, mm. right? And just coming from a place of curiosity, I think is the same, because we can learn a lot of techniques, but really the only thing that I'm trying to do is to be more curious mm. um, about my own internal reactions. That's why I stopped and I went, oh, what an assumption. I said him and he, thank you, sir. That was the assumption. I thought I was being polite, but how old-fashioned is that? That's my father coming out. He always called people sir and ma'am, mm. right? So I think just to be more curious about ourselves and more curious about others, what they're doing or saying that triggers us <laughs> or we notice. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. How do you feel about that? I, How do you do it? What do you do? Well, what I appreciate about what you said and what it is bringing up for me is the curiosity can start just with myself, right? So when you left post office, I what I hear is you had curiosity in yourself. What made me assume that this man wanted to be identified as a man, as a sir? And there's real, I think there's real power there in starting in myself with that curiosity. What, what led me to assume this? What led me to assume that? Because our brain makes these assumptions and these judgments. And I mean, like we've talked about, often from generations back, it can be things that our brain's making judgments now. So to start with that curiosity. And then if if I'm if I'm in a situation where I may not be ready to ask directly to the person that I've interacted with to find a safe place to to reach out to to you, Rebecca, and say, hey, I, I was in this situation and I realized that I made this assumption. I, I didn't say anything in the moment. I didn't feel comfortable asking, but what what else could I have done? What are some other ways to look at it? And so, you, you know, examining it and being curious first with myself, um, then perhaps with someone else that I, I know is going to create a safe space for me. And I, and I hope that that would lead to then me having more courage um, and practicing that curiosity then maybe in a in a direct situation. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I'm just thinking because there's something about curiosity that's it's also exhausting. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's really tiring. And I know that sometimes when I've listened to people saying, oh, you know, every thought's a belief and question it, and I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's also kind of tiring. So 
as you're speaking, I'm going, so what is it that I do? And I think one thing I do is sometimes I just play with myself. And what I mean by that, let me clarify. <laughs> let me clarify that. No judgment, Rebecca. Um, no judgment. <laughs> see, comes out. At least I'm hearing it more now. Um, I will, I play a little game that every time I have a thought, I go, is that true? Like, why? So, for example, I have this, um, just, I just did it, I do it for short bursts because I really have this, this, belief that all my thoughts are actually beliefs right so like i, I put some uh, jollof which is like rice and beans and some chicken in the oven just before we um, connected so that i could have a proper lunch a proper meal and um i thought oh this is really good jollof you know and then i go why do you think that and then i go oh yeah because you read the side and it's really healthy so it's rice and beans and there's not a lot of you know so i go okay so i value health it's not true that this jollof is really healthy. It's that I assume that it's healthy because I've read the side, although I can see all the oil in the packet. You know, I mean, so I think we also have to be kind to ourselves mm. and make our new practices doable mm. so we know it's impossible. So curiosity can be exhausting as well. Yeah, I appreciate you pointing that out. And I love what you just said in finding ways to make our new practices doable. Keep it simple, making it simple, right? Yes. Coming back to that. Rebecca, this conversation has, I, I've enjoyed it so much. And I know with our time, we're going to have to wrap up, but I started with a million questions to ask you. And I feel like I still have um, about a million and a half now because <laughs> I didn't get to ask you so many things. So I hope that you would be willing to come back for future conversations for a part two, probably a part three, four, however many, um, because it is felt like mm. just such an honor to, to have the conversation. And I appreciate your sharing so much and hearing your perspectives and, and your wisdom. Um, thank you, Lisa. I thought we were going to talk about adopting five kids. That's what I've <laughs> I wanted to, that's like a big question. I was like several times. I'm like, I want to transition to that, but I'm still so curious about this topic it's so you know i just i love um i'm definitely going to listen to the podcast i hate the sound of my voice but i feel like sometimes when and that's what you've been a curiosity partner and maybe that's part of the journey is to find somebody who can really help you unpack your own stuff not a coach or just a human it doesn't have to be somebody you know just because your curiosity has helped me i think with three big key things that i may not have um come to in my own mind so thank you very much i've really um <laughs> i've been surprised at where we are but i've really enjoyed it and i've really appreciated your your beingness your presence and your curiosity so thank you can, are you are you willing can i ask what the three <laughs> things are that you're seeing come up for you after our conversation i i am curious so how I do it is I count on my fingers and I said, oh, that's really interesting and that's really interesting and that I don't know. I don't, I, it was something about neuroplasticity and the link. There was something in the, um, uh, when we were talking about curiosity and I went, oh, that's really tiring, so how do we make it simple? Mm. Um, and then there was something at the very beginning when I went, oh, that's a new thought. So I don't even remember what that was because I don't take notes. And I never remember 
anything I say. The beautiful thing is you can listen to this again. And I have good news. If you listen to your voice enough times, it'll start to feel, it'll just sound normal to you. When you first start listening to yourself, you think, ah, do I sound that way? That sounds horrible. If you listen to yourself enough, and maybe this is sad commentary on me because I've listened to myself enough that I just sound normal now. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) It's me going, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen, but let me just be polite. Miss, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to today's conversation and episode of the Make Life Less Difficult podcast. Editing is done by Joseph Burdock. Artwork is by Emma Burdock. I'd be honored if you took a moment to share this with a friend and or leave us a review. Together, I truly believe we can make life less difficult.